Welcome to Our American Experiment, a podcast that engages leading thinkers and doers, creatively working to strengthen the United States of America, the longest running experiment to defend individual liberty and promote human flourishing the world has ever seen. This is Our American Experiment. It's Evan Baer from Austin, Texas, joining my co-host, Jessica Dahl from Washington, D.C. Jessica, we have a really exciting conversation today. I'm so thankful uh, that you are bringing this amazing guest, Steve Hilton, onto the program today. Steve is a, a amazing, extraordinary, unique, bizarre, so many adjectives come to mind. Uh, remind me the basics. Who is Steve Hilton? Yeah, Steve is a fascinating guy. I've really enjoyed getting to know Steve over the last couple of years. He is a campaigner. He, at heart, he originally got his start in politics in the UK, working as David Cameron's closest advisor. He moved to the United States. He sort of saw the winds of, of change with, with Brexit and then really predicted the Trump presidency when no one else did. He's also, as a conservative, has also launched a tech startup, which is amazing and unique that someone of his sort of politics would be sort of engaging uh, in the sort of liberal bastion of Silicon Valley. So a really fascinating guy. We've got so many, so many different things that that we can cover with Steve. So from a little Google stalking, which I try to do for all of our guests, one of the pictures I love the most of Steve is I think he's not even wearing shoes and he's feeding his chickens in his backyard in Atherton. What is, what's that all about? Steve is amazing. He has a $20 million home in Atherton where he feeds his chickens. He walks around barefoot most of the time. In fact, some of the the media always talks about the fact that he walked around 10 Downing Street, literally in his cycling clothes, wearing no shoes, sweaty while he's surrounded by a sea of suits. The man is confident in who he is. He gets it done. He doesn't care. He doesn't have a cell phone, in fact. He likes to be really present in the moment. That's that's his rationale behind that concept. Um, he, he has very specific views on how things should go, and he is not afraid to, to sort of live that out. It's impressive. Now, I'm no pro on feeding chickens, but I would just have to think, like, if you have a $20 million house, can't you, I don't know, like, afford to pay someone to feed your chickens? Look, Steve is a supporter of giving power back to the people, so he wants to push back against this elitist mentality, so he is going to do what the people do. Oh, gosh. Well, I'm so excited for this conversation <laughs> with Steve today. There are a bunch of different themes you could go into. I know one of Steve's big contributions to the world is his sort of lay political philosophy, uh, a positive populism, I think. What are you excited to talk with him today about in terms of his ideas? I'm really excited to hear what his version of populism is. There is That word is bandied about a lot right now, and it's tied to the Bannon sort of wing of, of the party, and there's a, there are a lot of sort of reflexive responses to that, whether people like it uh, a lot or they don't like it at all. And I think Steve's brand of populism is something that's a little bit different, and he's a pretty singular voice, I would say, on kind of what this this version of, of populism. So I'm excited to dive into that with him. Steve, from doing some internet stalking of you, I would guess that you're running late from feeding your chickens just now. Is that right? <laughs> that was earlier in the day. Okay. Is it a daily thing? Well, no, they get their own food, but you've got to let them out of the coop. Okay. Okay. Well, I know maybe that it's a big thread of what Jess wants to ask you about later, so I won't steal her thunder. All right. Okay. All right. Back to Jess. Okay. So, Steve, you are 
very rapidly becoming a prominent voice in in conservative U.S. politics. Obviously, as your accent uh, betrays, you are not from here. Um, So you spent a majority of your career in in British politics. Most notably, you were Prime Minister David Cameron's closest advisor. You eventually broke with him over uh, Brexit. You then moved to the United States and you founded a tech startup fighting against money in politics. And now in addition to that, you are hosting your own show on Fox News that explores the rise of populism. So you've had this very wide-ranging career. Um, You wrote a book a few years ago called More Human that really seems to be a manifesto of sorts that seems to tie a lot of these experiences together under a common theme. So it seems like it's this theme that um, in a lot of cases our lives are really being run by sometimes corrupt elites or or big bureaucratic systems who are really disconnected from the common needs of most people. This, of course, then leads to that tremendous frustration that people feel with government and politics and and their economic circumstances. Can you talk a little bit about the premise of More Human and sort of how you came to some of these these ideas and your overarching political philosophy? Well, I'm not sure I need to, Jessica. You've just done such a brilliant job of uh, summarizing uh, really the thing that's driven me uh, in all the things that I've done, not just the more political ventures that you've just described, but actually going back even even before that uh, in the UK, where I started a company called Good Business many years ago, about 20 or so years ago, which was a corporate responsibility consulting firm. And that too was really driven by this um, belief that, that, that big corporations in that instance were losing sight of the humanity of what their business should all be about and and their impact on society. And we were trying to help them improve their impact on society. So one way or another, I think that the theme of all the things that I've worked on and advocated for is this notion of people power, that people should be in control of their destiny. They should be able to um, influence the important things that affect their life and the lives of those they, they love. And that they should not just have the, the ability to do that in a, in a kind of literal sense in terms of laws and, and policies and regulations that, that allow them to have that power. But they themselves should be empowered in the sense that they should have the capacity to do that. They should have the skills and the talent and the capacity to be able to shape their destiny. And one way or another, that those are the things that I've always fought for, whether that's in politics or in government or in business or in my own personal advocacy through the books I've written. So you wrote the first version of this book when you were in in the UK, I believe, and then you published it again in the US, sort of at a really important moment in US politics. How did people, though, back in the UK, how did they originally respond to this? This idea was relatively new at the time before this wave of global populism really became a thing. What What was the response to it? Well, I tried very hard in, in the original version to to not make it particularly uh, ideological or partisan in a political sense. And I, and I, I, I think people found that pretty refreshing, um, I think, given that uh, a lot of these books that people who've worked in government or in politics write tend to be, uh, you know, either kind of dishing on all the enemies that they, they had in in government and 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 trying to fight old battles or advocating a, a particular sort of partisan point of view i really tried to avoid doing that and i think people did recognize that um and i was trying to get, one thing that really was interesting for me in writing the book was that as, as i was going to i mean you're right to characterize it as something of a manifesto though, though because i do go through different areas of 
of interest and policies, whether that's health and education or the the structure of capitalism or whatever, um, right through to issues like you know how we design spaces and um, and and problem. And the reason that things have become, in my view, dehumanized and distant from the human scale, in the end, isn't a, isn't actually a question of the policies of one particular government or another, or one particular party or another. It's the structure of how we've designed these systems that that is the problem. And so I ended up getting into, and that's why I think it's not particularly partisan. It's a structural thing. It's the the things that I criticize about the way the world has developed, it goes back decades and it hasn't really changed irrespective of who's been in power. And I think that's also true here in America, where if you look at, for example, one of the big problems we face today, which is uh, driving, I think, a lot of this this the populist rebellion, both on the left and the right, which is wage stagnation, the sense that, um, you know, a, a big part of, of America, not just a few people at the bottom of the income scale, but roughly half the country has been completely left behind by the big changes of the last few years. That problem's been going on for decades. It's not a Republican created problem or a democrat created problem it is the is the structure of our economy that's at fault and that's really the argument that i want to convey and so you don't just focus on on smaller government you would say you're maybe also focused on smaller living so you're sort of trying to reflect on civil society in a way that i think is actually really interesting and, and a lot less common frankly um and, fr- and, and even more important especially as we see communities sort of breaking down but being able to think structurally um but, but so what do you mean specifically, though, by smaller living? I think that um, the big problem, I mean, you know, these are inevitably quite sweeping statements. And, and um, I'm sure we can, there's, there's more nuance than inevitably we'll, we'll have time to get into. But generally speaking, I think one of the, the, the big problem at the heart of all this is a concentration of power. The concentration of power in our economy, in the hands of fewer and fewer giant uh, businesses in, in all sectors. Right now, everyone's focusing on the tech sector and how that's how a few companies are kind of becoming increasingly dominant. But it's true in every sector, in health insurance, in uh, airlines, in, in uh, hospitals, in, in all sorts of different sectors. A concentration of power um, in the economy and also a concentration of power in government and politics where you had more and more centralization of power um power being taken from the local level and put at the federal level and so i think that's the, that's what does a smaller i think actually what i really mean by that is that it's decentralizing power and putting it directly in the hands of people so a lot of that sounds very conservative in nature are you hesitant though to define yourself as a conservative or perhaps even a Republican, uh, you know, a Democrat or an independent, as you look at it in the American tradition, what, how would you how would you define yourself? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I certainly would put myself on the right. Um, uh, I do have a kind of healthy skepticism of um, utopian schemes to remake and redesign the world. But perhaps it's true that those terms, you know, I'm, st- I'm still, you know, we've, we've lived here five years now. And I love being here and I, I, I have all the zeal of the convert. I love America. And the more I learn about America, the more I love America. But um, those, you know, there, there are particular um, associations with those terms that I'm still kind of getting, getting to know, frankly. Um, 
And I think that there's a lot of baggage that comes with some of those labels. And the term that I uh, have chosen to describe the agenda that I'm advocating for is positive populism. That's that's a term you'll see um, displayed on the screen on my show on Fox News. And that's really how I, I like to define it. I think that um, the and, and what lies behind that, I think the reason I want to do that is I think that one of the problems that has led to, to the, the, the break, breakdown of many of these structures and the concentration of power is is too much ideology in politics. And I think there's something about the populist approach if we carry it out in a, in a positive way that is a bit more pragmatic and less ideologically rigid. And I think that's one of the problems with these labels like conservative or liberal or whatever. They, they, they put you in ideological boxes that actually constrain your ability to get the right answer to a particular social or economic problem. How would you specifically define populism, though? Because I think there's a lot of confusion in this in this current day around what that word means. There's a lot of negativity that can be attached to that word. You are explicitly recommending attaching positive uh, as a as a qualifier for populism. But how would you can you describe just how you what you consider to be populism? Well, I think it, I, I define it as, as putting power in people's hands. That's that's the sort of simplest way of, of putting it. Um, taking it out of the hands of the already powerful, the elite, the establishment, whatever term you want to use, and, and putting it in the hands of people. And that means an ability to affect the decisions that, that really matter in their lives. And that goes right across the board in the economy and in society and things the way the school system works there's a there's a whole range of things i think it's about people power that is that is what it means to me anyway i'd love for you to describe just from the, the people power perspective just when you when you sort of had that moment where you you broke with the prime minister david cameron over over brexit can you talk a little bit about that story and and just tell me sort of uh why you felt that was such an important moment to give the power back to the people well, it's first of all, it's something that that I believe for a long time. I argued privately within, you know, before we were in government and during that we should leave the European Union because I thought it was completely consistent with the argument that I I made and that we made, which was all about this this notion of decentralizing power. The thing I think a lot of um, people in America don't quite appreciate is the extent to which the European Union is not just a free trade area, something akin to NAFTA, but at the European level. It is that, and actually I fully support that. It's actually, over the last few decades, been moving more and more t- towards the, it, it, a role as a federal government for Europe. The, and we know, you know, the, the federal government here in America is not exactly popular, but the way I always put it is, well, at least the president is elected. At least Congress is elected. There is some degree of political accountability. At the European level, none of the people that drive policy are actually elected. Policymaking at the European level, which affects on, on, on some calculations, 70% of law and regulation that affects British people and businesses, 70% comes from the EU, originates in the EU. And the people that originate policy in the EU is the, the the body that does that is the European Commission. The European Commission is an appointed body. These people are not elected, and there is no power of veto. So there's a there's a system called qualified majority voting. 
what it means is that time after time, and I experienced this at first hand, that we, we, we in the democratically elected UK government, accountable to the British people, were forced to implement policies that we actively disagreed with and had and contradicted the platform that we ran on in the election. So on a fundamental level of democratic accountability, the EU, I think, is, is just a total abomination and you can't possibly support it. That, but that's my argument. You know, Steve, I appreciate that image of the appointed European Union bureaucrat and why they may not have the best interests uh, in mind. I think there's also a, at least alleged Winston Churchill quote, uh, something along the lines of the best argument against democracy is a five minute conversation with the average voter. So help us understand more about you know, who you are and what you do is, is pretty elite in itself. Even the conversation we're having right now is elite. Make the case for why the ordinary man and woman uh, should be really driving the governance and direction of a country. Well, I think there are certain things that um, you don't want, that people themselves don't want power and control over, and they, and they certainly don't want to be uh, running day to day. And there are things that certainly make sense to be handled, as I've always said, at the, at the nation state level and at the uh, international level. Um, but when it comes to things like how your school is run, um, what goes on in your neighborhood, um, health services, you know, these, these sorts of things that are very human and personal. Um, I think that the, the, the way that control of those has slipped from the hands of individual people who are perfectly well positioned to make those kinds of choices um, into the hands of technocrats and bureaucrats, distant, not just in, in sort of place, but in, in and an understanding of what people want. I just think it, it, it falls apart, but that has been the direction of, of, of travel, of, of policy. For the last few decades, we've seen an increasing centralization in the hands of technocrats. And actually, I don't, I don't think that they, it's not that they don't have people's best interests at heart. They do, they genuinely believe it. You know, I was, you know, I had endless battles with the civil servants um, in government, but I never doubted their good intentions I just, in in a way, my approach to this is quite Hayekian. Again, very elitist to throw that name in there. But I do think that that fundamental belief that underpins a belief in markets, actually, that there is no centralized authority, no group of technocrats so wise that they will come to better answers than individual people transacting freely in a market setting specific recommendations within more human within the as, as Jessica called it the sort of manifesto I've laid out it's a very market-driven approach particularly in areas like schools where I think we need a radical revamp of our whole approach to education in a more market-oriented direction uh, actually to remove um, government from it almost entirely other than in other than in relation to funding so look, I think it's about that fundamental belief that people are going to make better decisions. It's a trust in human nature. It's a faith that if you trust people, they'll do the right thing and behave responsibly. And actually, the opposite is also true. If you take away responsibility from people, then they'll tend to behave more irresponsibly. What was it like, that kind of decision, that personal decision that you made 
to sort of break with the establishment view on Brexit, that decision that you are going to put your reputation sort of on the line in the same way that a lot of people uh, today in U.S. politics who are who are sort of fighting against the establishment have to do, and they, they risk their reputations in some ways. Um, what was that de- personal decision-making process like for you? I mean, I know you were very close with Prime Minister Cameron. You're the godfather to his son. Uh, what was that like? It must have been such a personal, you must have felt it so personally and so strongly for you to, to be so vocal about it. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, it, it was personal. Um, you've got to remember that it all happened when I was pretty far removed and from him personally and the UK generally, because I'd been living here for a while. This the, the Brexit was last year in 2016, and we moved to California in 2012. So uh, my, we started building my new life, but you know we still saw um, our friends back in the UK, including the Prime Minister, when we went back, but rarely. So it wasn't as if it was it was very much, um, you know, a, a great presence in our lives. And actually, other friends, for example, Michael Gove, who was who was then the Justice Secretary in the British government, again a very close friend of mine, and David Cameron's, he was in his cabinet. That that was a much tougher decision i think he he was one of the leaders of the brexit campaign um but for me it was honestly that the 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 reason that i did i chose to get involved was funnily enough something that david cameron george osborne my other friends they said at the time which is that this decision is much bigger than any general election it's the biggest the most consequential decision any of us will take in you know for 40 50 years it's regeneration and my view was that if I didn't get involved and it, in, in something that was so clearly related to a fundamental thing that I believed, I'd just always sit back and regret it. And, and, I, and I just thought, you know, you've got to follow your heart and, and your beliefs. And um, that's why I did it. So you started talking pretty vocally um, about the election in the United States last year. How did you, when did you start to see that there were some similarities with Brexit and that the seas of change were sort of heading in that direction in the U.S. as well? When, what did you see that sort of sparked off, ooh, something different's happening here. Donald Trump might, might actually make this thing, this might actually happen. Yeah, I thought it was likely all along um, and, and said so because it just seemed to me a very similar situation in the sense that you saw people who and you know whether you you saw them personally you read their stories you saw it in the data in all sorts of ways i to me it was very clear that you there was this very large group of people who um were completely shut out from the benefits of the modern economy and and that was having a negative impact socially too i mean if you look i mean for me one of the most important pieces of evidence during that entire campaign that pointed towards a Trump victory was published, I think it was in September before, just before the election by the Census Bureau, which was the income data for the, pre, the income data, the annual income data. Now, for the previous year, um, incomes in America went up across the board in every, every part of the income range, and everyone rightly celebrated that. That's great news. But if you look at the, even in last year's data, if you looked at the long-term picture, and the New York Times actually did a brilliantly simple uh, graphic illustration of this, even including last year's income rise. The median income in America, the midway point, um, was lower last year than in 1999. 
In other words, half of American households were poorer last year than they had been before the start of the George W. Bush presidency. And what that really means in a very simple sense is that people think about that, what that means for people. They've had eight years of a Republican president and eight years of a Democrat president. And after those 16 years, their incomes are lower than at the beginning. And that not only makes them feel um, uh, that that sense of lack of hope and economic progress and opportunity, it also undermines their faith in politics because they literally say it doesn't matter who you vote for. Nothing changes. It's literally the case that the rich get richer and we get poorer. And that is true for half the country. And I think that the similarity with Brexit was that those the kinds of people who'd given up on politics because they had that sense that it didn't matter who you voted for, nothing really changed for them. With Brexit, they finally saw something where, you know what, this might change something. If we if this thing goes through, it really will happen. So it is worth voting. It is worth coming out and, and voting for this because finally something may change. And I think the same kind of phenomenon happened with Donald Trump, someone so different from the usual politicians. They thought, you know what, if we vote for this guy, something may change. And it was that sense of hope that this this that, that was um, represented by the referendum campaign in the UK and Donald Trump here that I think brought out to the polls people who had just given up on politics. Sadly, you were one of the very few who sort of could predict that or was speaking on that before it actually happened. So many people in the media, obviously, completely missed out on this phenomenon. So I'm thankful that your voice has has been out there. So would you would you call yourself a supporter of Trump or would you say maybe you're a supporter of Trump's supporters? Where would you say you fall? Yeah, I, I, I tried to um, uh, put it that way because there are a lot of things that the, the then candidate Donald Trump and, and subsequently President Trump has said that I don't agree with and wouldn't support. Um, but I do, so I very much support his supporters. I think that they deserve to be not just heard, of course, everyone deserves to be heard, but their interests should be paramount, should be placed ahead of the people who have dominated political thinking for many years strongly support them and i also actually you know and, and i think a lot of people made this made this argument at the time when you actually look at the the elements of uh donald trump's campaign the, the sort of policy elements there's a lot in there that i actually supported too for example the tax plan that um that he argued for in the election campaign which is you know close to the one that the hopefully the congress will pass and he will sign hopefully this year, um, big, big supporter of that on, on the grounds more than anything else, that it will uh, lead to economic growth, which will benefit the people who've been left behind the most. Um, other elements of, of his platform, you know, I, I, I'm a believer in controlling immigration. I, I'm very much pro-immigration. I'm the beneficiary of immigration twice over. My parents are Hungarian. They, I was born, I was born myself in, in London in the UK, but my parents both uh, fled communism in Hungary and were welcomed into the UK. I'm incredibly grateful for that. And now I'm incredibly grateful to the USA for welcoming my family here. Twice. I'm an immigrant twice over. I'm very much in favor of it. But I think it's just absurd to argue that that uh, immigration should be uncontrolled, that we should have open borders. Um, and so I support 
what he was arguing in terms of a better control of immigration. Uh, I, I thought what he was arguing about um, decentralizing control of education was, was very much in the right direction. There's a whole range of policy points where I thought he was saying the right things. Steve, I want to ask you one more question about the, the changing nature of populism. Let me rewind us a little bit. Uh, September 17th, 2012 uh, was the date of possibly the beginning of the end of Mitt Romney's presidential campaign. We're at a private event. He mentioned uh, that 47% of the people pay no taxes. And I think at the time it was framed a little bit as these 47% of Americans who pay no taxes are going to vote for a president that is going to basically take things from the 53% and give them to the 47%. And uh, that would sort of align on traditional Republican-Democrat dividing lines. Help me understand the 47% who, and that is actually a, a correct statistic in terms of people who do not pay federal income tax, that is a correct statistic. Uh, how does that 47% who pay no taxes map onto this populist resurgence for Trump? I'm not sure that it does. I, I think that there's a there's a misunderstanding. Actually, the data doesn't show that um, the support for Donald Trump was exclusively at the lower end of the income scale. He certainly won more votes at that level than previous Republicans, but his support went right up the income scale, actually. Mm. Um, so I don't think it depends necessarily on that. And I think that there are plenty of, of people who are comfortably off, who feel this sense of, you know, we, we need a big change in, in the way things that the way things are run. Um, I don't I don't really I don't think it's as mechanistic as that. I do think that the what was to me one of the most interesting things was the the political crossover from Obama supporters to Trump supporters, particularly in those deindustrializing areas, and I think that the actually and Bernie supporters. That's one of the one of the things I mean, I always uh, like to explore in our show on, on on the next revolution is is this kind of the, the sort of Venn diagram overlap between Bernie Sanders supporters and Trump supporters, particularly around those issues of around globalization and trade, and I think that was very resonant with them. This sense that the elitist agenda of which was uncritical of um, globalization and and trade uh, had enriched those who argued for it, but left the people who are who are uh, the victims of it in real economic and social pain. And I think that that, that wasn't necessarily a you know a lot of people who paid taxes who it were in that group as it were. So I, th I think that sort of blue collar appeal was very powerful and important. Steve, you're now the host of this new show that you just referenced on Fox News called The Next Revolution. You're on Sundays, prime time, an, an incredible slot for you. You're exploring the rise of populism around the globe in this show. And I think it really takes a, a really fascinating look at the, this movement that elected Trump. Um, you're also reflecting globally on things like Brexit in the UK, Catalonia in Spain, etc. Um, it seems to be in a really different mold than some of the other Fox shows as well. I mean, you're looking to really spark some more intellectual debate. It seems to be a lot less about sort of shouting matches. Can you tell us a little bit more about the show, but I really want to hear the story uh, about when Rupert Murdoch told you that he wanted you to have your own show. Can you tell us about that? Well, it, it was it was um, uh, funny enough. It was a, it was a combination of some of the things that we've we've talked about. So when my book uh, 
was published in the US. Um, I and actually, but, but but around the same time last year, spring last year, the More Human was published in the US, and the paperback version was published in the UK. And I was around doing media around that and talking about these exactly the same arguments we've been discussing. And then that kind of led into the Brexit campaign. And there wasn't that much interest, frankly, in Brexit here in America until it actually happened. And then the minute that it happened, everyone's, oh, my God, what just happened? How do we explain this? This is a huge earthquake. And I think some of the some of the um, people at Fox and I think the Fox audience particularly interested in it. And some of the people who'd. Um, uh, you know, I, I, this some of the shows I'd been on to sort of talk about my book and make those more broader arguments. And I wasn't there, that British guy. He had something to do with Brexit. Let's let's get. I'd, I'd done some shows from London, actually. I'd done some um, interviews from London into Fox shows around the Brexit campaign. And said, well, there's that guy. Let's get him back. He knows about all this. And so I, I just did more and more over the course of the summer. And actually, it was pretty much the question. That people were interested in then was the one that you've just asked jessica which was what's the connection is there a connection between what happened with brexit and what's going on with trump what's going on here and i, I was able to talk about that and so it really led led that that's where it all came from and and in fact it was it wasn't particularly rupert it was a whole bunch of um people at fox that I got to know over the course of that period and uh they thought that this would be an interesting theme for the audience the audience were clearly interested in it and they wanted me to uh, develop it more and um obviously i'm incredibly excited to have the platform to do that now what's the reaction been like for the the show thus far we're, we're thrilled you know people seem to be really engaged they uh, they they enjoy uh the, the way we're going about it i i would say that it fits very well into the um the, the 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 channel's programming. I think there's always more. You know, the, the Fox News is is much more varied in its programming than I think people often give it credit for. Um, and I think that uh, the, the the hallmark actually of of Fox is is you know is actually proper debate. You know, the the, the get get all the way through the channel, different um, different parts of the day and night and prime time and elsewhere. You will find. Uh, you know, healthy debate with really good, articulate um, advocates of both sides. And we, we try and do that as well. But with this particular focus on on populism, that's one of the reasons, one of the one of the elements of that that I think is, 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 is you know, distinctive to us is that we try and bring that 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 uh, left populism to the audience as well and, and look at where the differences but also the similarities are between that kind of bernie sanders branch of, of populism as well as the what you might describe as the sort of donald trump version um and and when we look at that that's probably one of the areas where we're um we're uh, a little bit different the other thing that people have really responded very well to and look forward to every week and we love we love doing it is this segment we run every week every week called swamp watch where we take a particular uh, could be an industry or a particular topic and really look at the kind of the from a sort of drain the swamp perspective what are the what are the kind of connections here where the connections often between big business and the big donors that want their interests met through different legislation and regulation and we, we sort of try and do a bit of 
investigative reporting there, trying to expose how the swamp that is has now become very well known thanks to that slogan in the election. What how how it really works. Um, that's one of the things that people look forward to every week a lot. In addition, Steve, to being a great host of uh, other people's opinions at uh, different times in your life, you've expressed some pretty strong opinions of your own, uh, notably, certainly in leading the uh, helping lead the British conservative movement, your positions on gay marriage and climate change, adapting what uh, some people might think of as the liberal position on those issues into the mainstream of the British Conservative Party, uh, to some seemed probably controversial. How did you make that decision to have that position on those issues and have that be really part of the modern British conservative movement? Well, I think that, that I'll take each of them in turn. I think that certainly in terms of um, marriage equality, I always saw that. And I know this is controversial. I'm, I'm aware of that um, here here in America. But I, I always saw it very much as a conservative position because fundamentally what, what, are, what are conservatives for? They're for the building blocks of a strong society, the institutions that build a strong society, which in the conservative worldview are not government, but they're, they're, they're individuals, they're families, they're neighborhoods, they're those human connections. Um, and marriage is one of the foundational examples of that. Uh, and in fact, what we did, David Cameron strongly believed in that too. We both, that was one of the things that, that we were most aligned on both personally and politically and so we did two things when we um when we took as it were you know when he after he became leader of the conservative party and, and was able to kind of set out his agenda first of all we strengthened the conservative party's commitment to marriage in general um which had actually uh diminished somewhat over the years so specifically with a commitment to you know uh, you know recognition for example one practical example recognition of marriage in the tax system had been removed we said we'd put that back we'd create tax incentives um, not so much incentives but a recognition of marriage in the tax system um, we we uh, made a number of uh, kind of you know there were a number of sort of speeches and other interventions where we kind of highlighted and emphasize the importance of marriage and commitment and so on so we really you know you could say it's a, a really socially conservative platform um more so than the, the the party had had for decades probably you know at least going back to the time of margaret thatcher and probably even more than she did so that was one element of it but a counterpart to it we felt was if you're going to be serious about if you, if you believe that commitment is a good thing if you believe that marriage is a good thing then that's true in all cases and actually it's a fundamentally conservative position to be in favor of marriage equality because you want people to make a commitment to each other to be together and to be part of as as a married couple as part of a strong community and so for us it was part of that overall story of commitment and that's how we framed it um and actually it was a it was, it was funny off a very popular position with the grassroots much to everyone's surprise when you put it in those terms with climate change, I think that, you know, that there we we weren't, um, I just think, you know, personally, David Cameron and myself weren't as closely aligned. We both were very committed to the, to the notion that the green agenda shouldn't be captured by the left and that it was fundamentally a conservative position to be in, to, to promote the green agenda. And, we, you know, we, you know, it's an obvious kind of 
point to make, but you know, a belief in conservation is something that is very conservative. I think where we, to a certain extent, parted company was the emphasis on climate change. I never particularly thought that was an important part of it. I think, the, in fact, and I've written this in, in More Human, I think the obsession with climate change and carbon dioxide and so on, to the exclusion of other vital parts of the green agenda, like biodiversity and the conservation of species long, uh, you know, wildernesses and so on. I just think that's a more, frankly, a more human um, way of thinking about the green agenda than, than just just doing just just being completely obsessed with carbon dioxide and climate change so we we weren't uh, that for me that it, yes i wanted the conservative party to be a champion of the green agenda but i wanted to distinguish that from just being all about climate change so steve you you moved from the uk in 2012 i believe and you moved to silicon valley where your wife works in tech. You started teaching a class at Stanford's D School, and you launched your own tech startup called Crowdpack. So in addition to being this conservative Fox News host, you're also interacting in the traditionally more liberal tech startup scene. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what the goals are with Crowdpack? It is very much in consistent with this idea of pushing back against what is maybe a corrupt political system that seems to favor the establishment political ruling class. But talk to talk to me a little bit about how Crowdpack is is sort of in line with some of these other uh, endeavors that you have had in your career. Well, I think that the the you know it's not exa- exactly the same. I think that the thing that really uh, drives us all at Crowdpack is this belief that um, we, you know, we need, as you, you put it earlier, to try and get big money out of politics to democratize the political process. So it's not just the big money donors, whether that's on the left or the right, who control, you know, who gets to run, who gets to win, who who's making the laws in Congress or state legislatures um, or in, in executive in the executive branch of government. And that the people, you know, you should have fair representation, and and people, and there should be a level playing field, so the people, and can participate more easily, and their voices can be heard. That's really what what drives us. Now, it's we're a non-partisan platform. Anyone can use Crowdpack to raise money and run for office, um, and uh, with, there are all sorts of different political views represented within our company, um, and so we we disagree on almost everything except this desire to to get big money out of politics and to ensure fair representation for people in the political system. Steve, you are a man of many talents, and I'm curious how you've thought about how you go about influencing the world. You know, we've unpacked some ideas, some truths, some ways that you want to see the world be, but you're building a tech company, you've written books, you have a TV show. How have you thought about being the most effective on behalf of these ideas? Huh. That's such a great question. I, I don't, um, I'm, I'm afraid I don't really, uh, <laughs> I just sort of do the, put one foot in front of the other, I guess. You know, I just do the, do the thing that seems to make sense at the time without any kind of really serious um, long-term strategic uh, thought given to that. Um, for example, uh, the, 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 the reason I started Crowdback was that as Jessica mentioned, I, we moved here. Uh, Rachel's obviously my wife was busy. Uh, you know, she she knew what she was going to do. She was doing the same job she had been doing, except without the 
uh, you know, sort of eight-hour time difference and the long commute. Um, what I I started at Stanford, and it was just that process of being there and, and working with students and and some of them roping me into their startups that they were working on that was something to do with civic tech or politics or whatever it may be and just working with a few of them just made me think you know what this is what i'd like to do there wasn't a great sort of strategic thought behind it it was just okay that sounds great maybe this is a good next move for me um and when i wrote the book more human there wasn't actually my intention to write a book it was the chairman of, of random house in the uk a, a friend of ours who as i was leaving 10 downing street um said to me, you know, you, you should write a book. And I said, well, I don't want to write a book. So no, you really should. You know, so she basically badgered me into writing the book. I wouldn't characterize them as choices um, made with some kind of longer term goal in mind. But in each of them, I, I, as you, you're right, you know, the, the, what I'm trying to do in, in, in different ways in each of them is to change things. Everything I've tried to do has been about that. I mean, if you go back to Prior to all this, as we were discussing earlier, you know, my company, Good Business, that was about trying to affect policy and outcomes working with big corporations. We started a restaurant called The Good Cook, which was a kind of community-based restaurant that ran a job training program for local kids with, who didn't have the skills to get jobs. You know, So one way or another, there, there, there's always been that kind of sense of you know, trying to affect things for the better whether on a very very local level or on a broader level but there's a kind of master plan all right all right so no master plan about these books that you write or shows that you produce but i think you are pretty intentional about what you wear okay okay there's this new york times piece that's pretty ridiculous i've never even seen words like this before you're in a t-shirt a black t-shirt festooned with flex is, is that a word? What does one to, to be festooned even mean? Okay, Steve, last question for you. Tell us about your style and what's one style fashion tip you have for the listeners? <laughs> I think that anyone who knows me, who uh, heard me making any kind of fashion tip for anyone, which is burst out laughing. Um, so I could just talk from my own experience. First of all, festive, like that T-shirt is from H&M, I think. That, and there are literally millions of Americans walking around with that T-shirt <laughs> right now. I can guarantee it. Um, I think that uh, the truth is that I've... <laughs> it is true. That, like, I, I, here's a story. When um, President Obama came to Downing Street um, in... I can't remember what year it was... Uh, 2010 2011 something like that i left in 2012 so it had to have been before that they are they they i never i never wore a suit and tie and down street. everyone thinks that i now i go around in a t-shirt and, and so on these days and everyone assumes it's some kind of californian affectation but it's not i've always been like this um including when i worked at number 10 downing street um and uh, they wouldn't meet into the meeting um because i they said well you gotta have to wear a tie i'm not doing that i did put on a tie when uh the queen came to visit 10 Downing Street. I thought, that, well, that, for her, I'm going to wear a tie. But for the for, um, when the president came, I didn't. And they sort of snuck me in at the back. And one of the president's aides, I don't know who it was, um, but this comment was picked up and then sort of went around the British press. They sort of pointed me out and said, who's the beach bum? So that was the Obama folks, what I looked like when I worked in Downing Street. So I don't know if that's a style tip that anyone would want to follow, but that's they thought 
I love it. Always pushing back against the elitist status quo. I love it. Very consistent. Well, Steve, that this was fantastic. Thank you so much for giving us your time today. We loved hearing all of your stories and hearing your perspectives. Really appreciate it. That was fun. Thank you so much. See you soon. Thanks, okay, Steve. Thanks, Steve. Uh, the conversation with Steve Hilton, uh, big themes or, or surprising components to you from the chat? I'm so surprised that Steve, who seems like a very intentional guy, didn't have a very intentional sort of path forward for some of the opportunities that he has pursued. So surprising, given the level of success that he has had, don't you think? Oh, and just these moments of like, well, someone kind of asked me to write a book. And I know there's a fuller story of, I think, Rupert Murdoch from famously Fox News just sort of prevailing upon him like, oh, you should have a show. And yeah, I mean, sometimes you see these people and you just assume that it was all so calculated and planned. And his seems to be a lot more, I don't know, serendipitous. It's It seems to be representative, though, of the level of sort of big thinking that Steve does. I mean, he's a big sky thinker is what a lot of the articles that describe him uh he, he really seems to embody that. And I think those ideas were just so compelling that it really led to a lot of opportunities for him. But also a really unorthodox list of engagements, right? We didn't get all the details, but the organic restaurant, and he started out with the CSR company that advised companies on building social responsibility. I mean, sounds like a, a modern day grassroots liberal organizer, right? Definitely, definitely. Yeah, but I think there's something winsome about that. I think of a modern day movement around like John Mackey's conscious capitalism would be something that, you know, transcends some traditional lines. You know, on the one hand, he's thinking about both the nobility of business and the ability to create profits, but also the encouragement to companies to help really serve the communities that they are part of. So maybe Hilton was kind of the the Mackie before his time. For sure. I mean, I think that's one thing that really stands out is that he sort of saw the winds of change, both in the UK and then in the United States, really before anybody else did. And I think the fact that he sort of has his foot in both worlds, sort of both the left and the right, both in the UK and, and in the US, sort of gives him this really interesting perspective that frankly, a lot of other people missed. I mean, we're so stuck in our echo chambers. We're so stuck in the sort of ways that we think things should be. He has this much broader sort of vision and set of experiences, I think, that sets him up uniquely to sort of be maybe a bit of an oracle on on kind of the, the tides and, and the seas of change. Yeah, I really love, too, his framing around the conversation of marriage. You know, I know a lot of modern-day sort of marriage equality movements uh, feel to me focused mostly on the legal right to marry. And in some cases, that's made by the same people who advocate for no-fault divorce and polyamory and all sorts of flexible modern uh, structures of families. But it was interesting how he situated. He said, look, real conservatives would be for the family. We are for institutions. We are for marriage. So it's yes on marriage equality, but situated in this larger umbrella of we are for commitment. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also, I think it's representative of the fact that the sort of structures and the way that we think about how some of these 
social issues fit into each of the parties, like the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, and the way that we we think that those issues should be sort of mitigated through that lens is actually becoming less and less relevant. I think he's really hitting on that idea that, that these structures need to be flexible and need to be adaptable because we're in a new a new era. I mean, I think that's also reflective of the fact that, you know, while he would call himself a conservative or he, maybe he didn't even call himself that, he said he was he would consider himself right of center. But he wouldn't identify himself as as a Republican, he wouldn't identify as a Democrat, liberal conservative. I mean, those titles are becoming less and less meaningful as sort of the times times are changing and the needs of people are are changing in ways that we didn't really anticipate. I mean, wasn't the big takeaway from the Trump victory that he was able to recruit significantly more lower income voters than previous Republican presidents? And you would normally think that those would be people who would vote to say, I want more free things. But Trump didn't really say, I want more free things. So in some sense, Trump was able to say to, as Steve pointed out, the millions of Americans whose effective income is lower than it was 16 years ago, Trump was able to get those people to vote for him and without having to say, I'm going to give you more free things. Because I think it's more than that. I think there's a big culture war there where people are feeling at all income levels, people are feeling attacked. Their values are feeling attacked. They feel that Democrats have called them rubes who live in the flyover states who are bigots because they hold more traditionally Christian values. They're feeling constantly under attack by culture because culture is controlled by the left. And so I don't think that it wound down to the very specific thing of money and what can you give me and what can you not, though I do think that there are aspects of that. A lot of his supporters are in support of big government and some of those those programs. But I think it's broader than that. I think I think culture played a role in this election in ways that we haven't seen in past election. This has been Our American Experiment, a podcast about the longest running experiment to promote human flourishing the world has ever seen. <laughs>